KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, John Nichols will report on the good news from Wisconsin, where the liberal candidate came out way ahead in the primary for a new state Supreme Court justice. Also, our Black History Month feature this week, Ellie Mistal explains why our Constitution is not good. He's the nation's justice correspondent. First up, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, you have a big piece at the Prospect website headlined, The Silence of American Jews. With a few exceptions, you say, Jewish organizations and elected officials haven't said much, or not enough anyway, about the current assault on Palestinians by Israel's new government, the expansion of settlements, the legalization of illegal settlements, the killing of Palestinians, and the assault on Israel's own liberal ideals, especially Netanyahu's efforts to give the Knesset the power to overrule Supreme Court decisions. 150,000 Israelis have been protesting against those developments this week in Jerusalem. Among American Jewish organizations, there's one big exception to the pattern you've pointed to, and that's J Street. And for 15 years, J Street has been warning about what they call, quote, the dire threat posed to the future of Israel, its democracy, its values, and its security by the agenda of far-right ultranationalists and religious zealots. They've been more active in the last couple of weeks than ever before. Let's talk about J Street for a minute. Well, J Street was more or less conceived as the alternative to APAC. Uh, APAC, which, uh, you know, like most Jewish organizations, presumes to speak for American Jews, uh, had essentially a policy of backing, uh, you know, whatever the Israeli government was doing. And with a brief, not quite one year exception, Israeli governments for the last 15 or 20 years have been headed by Bibi Netanyahu, have been right wing, have been uh, dismissive of the two state solution, despite what they claimed, I don't even think they claim it now, have been encroaching on uh, Palestinian land and Palestinian lives. Uh, and has been generally moving to, in an illiberal direction. And uh, J Street was set up uh, by uh, people who said, look, if you want Israel to survive, and particularly Israel to survive as a democracy, uh, everything I just you know, alluded to has got to stop. Uh, there has to be a viable Palestinian state next door to Israel. Uh, and uh, that would ensure Israel's continued existence in the family of nations. And there has been some movement in both the House and the Senate on this front in the last uh, week or two. J Street is leading a delegation of 15 members of Congress to Israel and to Palestine. It's led by uh, Jim McGovern, and it includes at least two House members from California, Mike Levin from San Diego and Katie Porter from Irvine. It notably includes Jamie Raskin, the Democrat from Maryland who helped lead the January 6th committee hearings. 
known as a longtime supporter of Israel, he denounced the Israeli government this week and said, quote, all over the world, liberal democracy is under siege by right-wing autocrats and fanatical extremists who are in a coordinated attack on global freedom. He went on, fortunately, the forces of strong democracy, judicial independence, human rights, women's equality, religious pluralism, and the rule of law are also on the march. And this is the key part. From the streets of Jerusalem, to the streets of Tehran, to the heroic people of Ukraine battling fascist invasion, close quote, Jamie Raskin. So he is putting the Netanyahu government alongside the government of Iran and the government of Putin as enemies of democracy. Have you ever heard Jews in Congress talking like this before? No, not Jews in Congress. Uh, I've certainly heard Jews not in Congress <laughs> talking like that before. And, uh, uh, I uh, note that on one of the Sunday talk shows uh, this past weekend, Bernie Sanders uh, said, uh, you know, we need to look at conditioning aid to Israel uh, on the conduct of its, uh, you know, very god-awful government. And I, very god-awful is my characterization, but that caught, catches the spirit of what Bernie Sanders said. And I think that's the real battle. And this is why it's important for more Jewish organizations to step up, because if anything like this is going to happen, it has to have, uh, you know, uh, backing not just from J Street, but from some other groups like uh, the uh, Reform Jewish Organization, which represents two million Jews. Uh, you know, that in turn can affect Jewish members of Congress. That can certainly affect. Uh, the democratic leadership uh, in general and uh, the Biden administration. So there's a there's kind of a flow chart here that begins with uh, organized American Judaism. And, and let me say, it's not just Bernie Sanders who is criticizing the Netanyahu government right now. Bernie, I believe, is the only one who was explicitly talked about conditioning the billions of dollars that America gives to Israel every year on its human rights uh, record and activity. But a couple of other figures who have been in movement in the last week, Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland, who is Jewish, one of the, has been one of the most stalwart pro-Israel Democrats in the history of the Senate, kind of guy who has sponsored bills to punish companies that boycott Israeli settlements. He had voted against the 2015 Iran nuclear deal last week. He said, quote, I am fearful for the future of democracy in Israel because of the right wing Netanyahu government and its threat to undermine the essential checks and balances that make democracies work, close quote. Chuck Schumer is leading a delegation to Israel this week, including Ron Wyden and Richard Blumenthal. I would emphasize none of those people have joined Bernie in calling for conditioning uh, American foreign aid on Israeli policy. The other significant voice here uh, is New York Times columnist Tom Friedman, no friend of ours, but he had an op-ed focusing on the negative impact the Netanyahu, Netanyahu's government's attacks on Israeli democracy would have on the country's high-tech sectors. And this was also picked up by the Financial Times, which warned of crony capitalism taking over the Israeli uh, economy. 
and said Netanyahu would be doing irreparable damage. A couple of Nobel uh, economists have also warned about the potential effects of scaring off investors and bringing state corruption under uh, Netanyahu's government. And what Netanyahu is doing in response is bringing Republican senators to Israel. Mitch McConnell is coming this week. Tom Cotton, ranking member of the Foreign Relations Committee, all visiting Israel this week. It's kind of an interesting development that they're relying more on Republicans now than on Democrats. Well, but Netanyahu already established a close connection to Donald Trump uh, and was invited by uh, the House when it had Republican leadership to address the uh, the Congress. So uh, that's pretty clearly the rift here. And Republicans apparently are untroubled by the authoritarian moves of Netanyahu, while American Jews have a basically uh, uh, really, you know, real differences with that. And polling shows about 70%. On the flight of tech, uh, the potential flight of high tech from Israel, we should note that that would put Israel in a parallel position to Russia since uh, Putin declared his war on Ukraine. It's been the young techies who have left, uh, you know, Russia, uh, you know, sitting back there with an abacus uh, instead <laughs> of whatever tech devices they they had had. So there, there is a commonality, as Jamie Raskin said, uh, in, uh, in, in this authoritarian movement around the world. And... Uh, you know, respect for science and true facts, as it were, is is uh, is not part of it. Uh, your piece at the Prospect website took a step back for the long view, the really long view. For 2,000 years, Jews have been in the minority wherever they have lived. So they became great defenders of the rights of minorities over the last century or two. Then in 1949, for the first time in 2,000 years, they became the majority of their own country, what happened to minority rights where the Jews were in the majority? Well, they behaved like a majority. It took a while. Uh, I mean, the state was founded by socialist Zionists who were definitely Zionists and certainly intended to establish a Jewish state, uh, but with liberal values encased within that. Uh, eventually, particularly the, uh, the fact of occupation, uh, historically, I don't think there's been a single occupying power that hasn't been brutalized uh, by being an occupying power. And I think that, you know, I mean, that that kind of just is an inherent uh, consequence of, uh, of, of being an occupying power. And it certainly affected Israel. While in the diaspora, Jews have been a self-conscious minority uh, and therefore a, a staunch defender of minority rights, liberal values. And, uh, you know, if, I'm, if I am only for myself, uh, you know, however that goes, what am I? Uh, then of universal values, uh, including minority rights for all minorities, as well as majority rule for majorities. The long view from Harold Meyerson. Well, now it's time to talk about the class struggle in America regular feature of this broadcast. Some of our favorite union organizers work at Starbucks, where they faced massive efforts by the company to defeat their campaign. But there's good news for Starbucks workers this week with implications for all organizing campaigns in America. What's the story here? Uh, the National Labor Relations Board brought suit against Starbucks on behalf of a worker 
who had been illegally fired uh, for being part of a unionization campaign. And the judge, who was a judge in the federal court in the Eastern District of Michigan, uh, not only said, yes, this is a violation of law, but he granted uh, what usually isn't even asked for in such cases. Usually when uh, a complaint like this is brought, it gets adjudicated at the NLRB uh, regionally, then nationally, then it goes to the court. It, it, it can go on for months or years uh, because uh, the employers can you know, drag things out, they can appeal. Uh, all this, uh, while you know the momentum of an organizing campaign is put on hold and eventually dies, so it's a very effective anti-unionization tactic. Uh, but uh, the brilliant general counsel of the NLRB, appointed by Joe Biden, Jennifer Abruzzo, has sent out a memo saying, "Look, uh, violating uh, the National Labor Relations Act uh, authorization." to say it's legal for workers to organize uh, can be uh, delayed indefinitely, which is in itself a violation of the NLRA. So what we should do under section 10J of the National Labor Relations Act is go to federal court and get the judge to uh, deliver an injunction to stop doing, for the employer to stop doing the illegal things that the employer is doing. And that is exactly- Doing it, doing it immediately, doing stop it immediately. immediately. Yes, and that is what Judge Goldsmith in uh, this case ruled in, in the District of East, Eastern Michigan. Uh, and it applies to all of Starbucks' illegal actions all across the country. Now, it is highly likely that Starbucks will appeal uh, this ruling, but it's an injunction with, a, with a, you know, an immediate uh, cease and uh, desist uh, order coming into effect. And so uh, for now, th the kinds of things uh, that Starbucks and most employers do, illegally firing workers, holding captive audience meetings in which workers are compelled to listen to anti-union propaganda from managements and so on and so forth, uh, they can't do. And so we'll see where this goes. This really kind of breaks new ground uh, in the practice of labor law, at least over the last 50, 60 years. Uh, and, uh, you know, this could well, uh, you know, encourage uh, more Starbucks outlets, the workers there to, to unionize. I mean, it, it, the, it had an initial burst, about 280 uh, Starbucks have, uh, have gone union. That's out of a total of 9,000 that the company owns. But the momentum has certainly slowed in the last half year. And so this could uh, just possibly kick it up again. And now it's time to talk about California politics and the Senate primary race to replace Dianne Feinstein. Barbara Lee, the longtime representative from Oakland, has finally announced officially she is in. Uh, she will be the uh, Northern California candidate. This is the part of the Democratic Party of California that has given us Dianne Feinstein, Nancy Pelosi, Gavin Newsom. It's been a electoral powerhouse for decades. Does this mean Barbara Lee has a chance? A small one. Barbara Lee has represented the Oakland Berkeley Congressional District, and I would say represented it very well, for more than 20 years. And she's never had to run a campaign except for the first one. Uh, she, she hasn't done national fundraising. She barely does local fundraising. So she starts against two figures who uh, have do have 
a, a much greater name recognition based on what they've done. Uh, Katie Porter going after corporations, going after the Trump administration, uh, really a, a, a protege of Elizabeth Warren in, in every way imaginable. And then there's Adam Schiff, who uh, was a burr in Donald Trump's uh, side, uh, heading the Intelligence Committee, leading the first impeachment uh, trial uh, of Donald Trump. Both of them uh, have been in the public eye very prominently and have raised a ton of money before they declare, before they even thought about running, uh, which they now have. I think Katie Porter has about $9 million in the bank and uh, Adam Schiff has $20 million. Whoa. Uh, uh, Barbara Lee has, uh, the technical term is bookus. She <laughs> really doesn't have, uh, I think it's like 50,000 bucks in her, uh, in her campaign treasury. Uh, that's one, one point. Another point is, look, the reason Dianne Feinstein is stepping down is, you know, there's one, a one word explanation, age. Uh, she is currently 89 and it shows. Now, Barbara Lee is, you know, has done remarkable things, but she's 76. And I don't know that the electorate wants to turn from someone who couldn't serve at 89 to someone who would be, you know, taking a, a six-year term beginning two years from now at the age of 78. Uh, so that's another factor. And then if, you know, if there's race-based voting, well, Barbara Lee is African-American and the percentage of Californians who are Black is like 5%. So that is not a huge constituency either. So to get back to your original posing of the question, uh, if Northern California wants to vote solidly Northern, uh, that would help her a lot. Uh, but any way you look at it, I think she has a very steep climb ahead of her. Well, whoever wins will be a lot more progressive than Feinstein has been. You, you know a lot about how she pretty much always stood at the right wing end of the California Democratic Party. She does have a couple of notable achievements that you recalled in a wonderful uh, trip down memory lane. Let me just list uh, her bill banning assault weapons in 1994, which was not renewed 10 years later, and the report on the CIA's detention and interrogation practices, 7,000 pages long, that she oversaw as chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee in 2014. I mean, that was 20 years ago and 10 years ago. And then there's the but. And the buts are pretty big when it comes to Dianne Feinstein's record. Well, when you said she's positioned herself on the right of the California Democratic Party, I say the first time I ever heard her give a speech was at the 19, I was, you know, a political editor of the LA Weekly at the time, the 1990 California Democratic Party convention. And she was running, uh, she was mayor of San Francisco. She was running uh, for, uh, for governor in the Democratic primary against the Democratic attorney general at the time, John Vandekamp. Vandekamp opposed capital punishment, which was a bit of a novel thing for an attorney general of California at that time. Uh, Feinstein gets up and, you know, gives her talk and then pauses and, you know, very clearly declares that she is a supporter of capital punishment. And, you know, the crowd booed. She wanted the crowd to boo. Her campaign handlers had cameras and mics all across, all across the arena uh, picking up those boos. And that quickly became one of her TV spots. She was running against that year's version of woke liberalism. 
and against what most of the Democrats in, uh, in, in, in California believed. Um, similarly, uh, she was one of a, obviously a clear majority of Democratic senators who voted for to authorize George W. Bush's war in Iraq. Uh, but if you look at how uh, her fellow California senator, Barbara Boxer, and the clear majority of California House members voted on that, they voted against. So there has been, you know, there's been some space always between Dianne Feinstein and what I would say is the heart of the California Democratic Party, and certainly the current triumvirate that's running to succeed her are closer to, uh, to that perspective. One last thing. Looks like Republicans in the House are giving up what was going to be their big issue in the upcoming debt limit crisis, the demand to cut Social Security and Medicare. Why would they give that up? Uh, because they get clobbered on that issue. One of the reasons they do the culture war stuff so much is that they do understand that their position on economics is not supported by the American people. And even if a culture war issue clearly goes against them as abortion has, then they just shut up. Uh, uh, so uh, that, that's why they did that. But, you know, I think we should look at, uh, uh, they're trying to cut food stamps and Medicaid. Of course, they've tried to cut Medicaid before. And the problem with that is that there are over 90 million Americans on Medicaid, and a lot of them are Republicans. So that they, they even get in some trouble doing that. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold, for this week's update. Always glad to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The single most important election before the 2024 presidential race is underway right now in Wisconsin, where liberals have an opportunity to end conservative control of the state Supreme Court, the court that has blocked abortion rights and approved the most draconian gerrymandering in America. Tuesday was the primary, where liberals and conservatives each picked their candidate for the general election coming up in less than six weeks on April 4th. For comment on the primary results, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent, and he's co-author of the book with the wonderful title, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, published just this week. We reached him today in Madison. Hi, John. Hey, it's good to be with you, John. What's the name of your co-author on It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism? Uh, Senator Bernard Sanders. <laughs> From Vermont. Yes. Uh, we'll be talking about that book here in the next uh, week or two. Uh, we're speaking now on Wednesday morning, the day after the primary. The Wisconsin State Supreme Court is officially nonpartisan, so the four candidates in the primary were not identified by party. Let's start with the winners on each side. Democrats had united behind their candidate, so this one was no surprise. Janet Protasewicz, she will be the candidate of abortion rights and voting rights. Uh, tell us about her victory. How big was it? 
It was pretty big, John. Um, Janet Protosiewicz is a judge from Milwaukee. She's a longtime uh, Milwaukee County Assistant District Attorney, very deeply rooted in the state. And she got in this race relatively early and ran as a, a very clear supporter of abortion rights, of fair elections, of democracy. She she didn't say how she would rule on particular cases, but she made it clear that um, her values were progressive values. And there was another candidate in the race, uh, Judge Everett Mitchell from Dane County, which is uh, the Madison area, who also was very progressive. He did not get, uh, didn't take off as a candidate so much. But the interesting thing is, that Protosewitz got 46% of the vote, almost a majority in this four-way primary. Mitchell got about 8% more. So the overall liberal vote in this primary, which was the highest turnout um, court primary in, in you know, modern history of Wisconsin, uh, was 54%. That's pretty, that's very substantial. It's good for Protosewitz in and of herself, but it's also, when you add those Mitchell votes in, um, it's good for uh progressives looking forward to the April 4 general election in the state. The Republicans, in con- in contrast, had a real contest. Their winning candidate is Daniel Kelly. I understand he's already been a Supreme Court justice. What happened with that? <laughs> Dan Kelly was on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and he uh, was appointed by former Governor Scott Walker. And prior to being on the court, he had actually represented the Republicans in the legislature when they gerrymandered the state legislature and the Congress. So it wasn't there wasn't a lot of mystery as to where he stood uh, on partisan and, and political issues. He's also extremely socially conservative. So he got appointed to the court by Walker. And then usually in Wisconsin, it's almost a given that Supreme Court justices get reelected. Um, but in 2020, in uh, the uh, April election, uh, he faced a challenger, a Dane County judge named Jill Karofsky, and um, she beat him by 150,000 votes. It was a it was a wipeout. Kelly, then when he left being a, a Supreme Court justice, when he was swept out by the voters, he went to work for the Republican Party. He became a lawyer uh, for the Republicans during the contested 2020 presidential election. Mm. So again, pretty clear where the guy's coming from. But he faced a very serious fight because uh, there was a woman, Jennifer Doro, uh, who's a judge in Waukesha County, uh, and who, frankly, by most accounts, was a more appealing candidate. Daniel Kelly, the winner, is actually one of the biggest losers in Wisconsin politics. He lost by almost 10 percent. How significant is losing by 10 percent in Wisconsin? It's pretty significant because, as people know, Wisconsin is the most closely divided battleground state in the country. Of the last six presidential elections in Wisconsin, four have been decided by under 25,000 votes. And so to lose a spring election for Supreme Court by 150,000 or more than 150,000 votes, as Kelly did, that's pretty jaw-dropping. So why would Republicans want a candidate who was such a big loser? Why not this Jennifer Doro who was more more popular with the public. I understand she had presided over the trial of the guy who killed several people in the Waukesha Christmas parade. Why not Jennifer Doro? I know she was the one that the Democrats were more worried about running against. I think that's fair to say. And Jennifer Doro, uh, actually, she got in the race late. And I think that she was actually talked into running in part because people thought Kelly was a weak candidate. However, 
Um, she was a relatively polished candidate. Uh, but the thing that probably hurt her the most is that she didn't have as much of a record as a right winger, though she is very, very conservative. There's no question of that. What Kelly did was say, you know, we we haven't really seen how she rules on a lot of issues. You can't be certain. <laughs> you can't be absolutely certain that she would be a stone cold right wing judicial activist. He didn't say it in so many words, but that was basically the message. And apparently that that concern among conservative and Republican voters that that a moderate might sneak through, even if that's an electable moderate, um, was overwhelmed by the desire to have an absolute rock solid right winger um, who in 2020 had run with the endorsement of Donald Trump. So Kelly may be one of the biggest losers in Wisconsin, recent Wisconsin political history, but he has succeeded at one thing, getting the support of the billionaires who fund Republican candidates, the billionaires with the beer that made Milwaukee famous. Tell us about the U-Lines. Well, the U-Lines are deep rooted in Wisconsin history, although they actually live in Illinois. Um, and so they're, they're a couple uh, who have uh, inherited immense amounts of money, massive amounts of money, and invested it apparently quite well. And so they are among the top five Republican donors in the United States. In recent years, they've given more than $230 million to conservative candidates. And they were you know, critical supporters of Ron Johnson when he ran for re-election and narrowly won in, in 2022. They have made it, Richard Uline, uh, the husband, has made it very, very clear that they're going to do whatever they can to help Dan Kelly. They clearly helped him in the primary, and Kelly had a lot of outside spending on his behalf there. And uh, Kelly has suggested at, in one interview or comment that he thinks as much as 20 million in outside spending will come into the state. Wow. Um, that won't all be for him, mind you. But and I actually think it's an underestimate. I think that you're going to see tens of millions come in. This will be without a question the most expensive Supreme Court race in the history of the United States. And that right-wing money will keep Kelly competitive. In fact, I think he'll be highly competitive. In a sense, this won't be a race between uh, Janet Prosewitz and Dan Kelly. This will be a race uh, really between right and left, right? And between, you know, progressives versus right wingers, because the court in Wisconsin is currently split four three. One of the four conservatives is standing down. So if Protosewitz wins, this will be a four three liberal court. If Kelly wins, it'll be a four three conservative court. Everything comes down to that in a state where. Abortion rights will almost certainly come to the court because Wisconsin has an 1849 law that, that effectively bans abortion, where political issues of all sorts of consequence will come, especially as we move toward the 2024 presidential election, where gerrymandering is very likely to be revisited in a way that could actually end up, if you had fair maps, give Democrats several more seats in Congress, and where Scott Walker's longtime anti-labor agenda could easily be relitigated as well. So you start to see, John, that pretty much everything is at stake. So let's let's look more closely at what are the big issues in this case, uh, some specific to Wisconsin, some for the national political scene. You said abortion is coming up before 
the state Supreme Court and that the current law was passed in 1849. Could women vote in 1849 in Wisconsin? No, they could not, John. <laughs> well, that um, will be one big difference this time. Uh, yeah, that is a huge difference. And, um, and it's also a huge issue. I was on the University of Wisconsin campus uh, the weekend before the primary, and I was talking to a group of young women who were at a at an event dealing with the Supreme Court race, they bluntly said, look, this is this is our referendum on abortion. Other states have referendums of that kind. Wisconsin does not. So the court race becomes really, really critical in this regard. And according to polling, you know, roughly 60 percent of Wisconsinites believe that abortion should be legal in all or most circumstances. This 1849 law, does it permit abortions in the case of rape or incest? No, it's a very draconian law. If it is upheld, it would effectively bar abortion in Wisconsin. And it's it's already had a huge impact, John. Abortion clinics in Wisconsin have, have you know shut down. People are going to Illinois and to Minnesota to get you know reproductive services. Now, this is a big deal because Wisconsin has again been historically a pro-choice state. So this law was really thought of as a footnote. You know, it was it was something from the past that wasn't really expected to be you know, this definitional. And it may not be because this has to be interpreted by the court. So the court may well say, yeah, this law from 1849, which wasn't applied for 50 years after Roe, doesn't stand. If that's the case, then Wisconsin will will have abortion rights. Uh, On the other hand, if you've got a a social conservative court that says, no, the 1849 law stands, and if they uphold it as it's written, the potential for you know Wisconsin to have some of the most stringent restrictions on abortion rights uh, becomes very real. And the other big one with national significance is gerrymandering. Wisconsin has eight seats in the House. How are they divided between the parties now? And what would be an equitable division of those eight seats? Well, Wisconsin is pretty much an evenly divided state. As I said, in presidential elections, the last six of them, four divided by under 25,000 votes. Our governorship is, you know, usually decided by, you know, like 51 or 52 to 48, 49. These are close, close contests. And that's that's just the truth of Wisconsin. But our congressional delegation is currently 6-2 Republican. And um, in the legislature, by the way, it's even more overwhelming. So these the the Republicans have gerrymandered these seats pretty radically. Uh, An equitable distribution would be a four-four. Wisconsin is a competitive state; it swings back and forth. And so, in a good year for Democrats, it might even end up as a five-three for the Democrats. In a good year for Republicans, yeah, you could end up with a five-three for the Republicans. Now, here's the big deal: How closely is Congress divided, John? (laughs) Pretty darn close right now. So if you ended up with a fair map out of Wisconsin, just a competitive map that gave Democrats the opportunity to win, you know, as many as as, uh, four seats, a substantial portion of the Republican majority in the House of Representatives could be lost in Wisconsin alone. Wow. Well, I understand that 92% of Wisconsin voters are white. And this makes white women the largest single demographic block in Wisconsin. Democrats want to focus their efforts for the next uh, six weeks on white women. And the other key Democratic constituency is 
Uh, students, I heard that Wisconsin has 320,000 college students. That's many times what they need for the margin of victory uh, in the state Supreme Court. Yeah, you're, you're getting a clear picture of Wisconsin. So here's the way that, that a progressive candidate wins in Wisconsin. And you can't underestimate uh, the importance of the black vote in Milwaukee. The fact of the matter is that Milwaukee is a, a city with a very, very large uh, black and Hispanic population. And there's a couple other cities, uh, Beloit, Racine, and others. So you have to mobilize that black vote. That is That cannot be underestimated. That's an important part of this equation. And then you get a very, you know, you get a pretty progressive vote out of Madison. But as you point out, swing voters in Wisconsin, or the voters that potentially could, could decide this race, uh, tend to be, uh, there's a lot of suburban women. There are also a lot of rural women who, if abortion becomes a very central issue, and I think it will be a central issue in this, in this race, that could have a profound impact. And what we know, this final element of the students, what we know is that among young women uh, and young men, to be quite blunt, uh, there's overwhelming support for abortion rights. And so if you can mobilize students, that is clearly going to have a huge impact. And I will tell you one of the interesting things in the primary. Now, imagine this. In the primary election, almost a million people voted on, on Tuesday. Um, that's compared to you know previous primaries where you know it was dramatically less. Seven hundred five thousand was the previous yeah. record I read. Yeah, and this excitement is already there, and the campus turnout in Madison, but also in outstate campuses like University of Wisconsin and up at Eau Claire in northwestern Wisconsin, was high proportionally. Not it wasn't overwhelming, but it was significant. And so I do think what you're going to see, huge amount of uh, outside money coming in for the Republicans to do TV ads. I think what you're going to see is progressive groups doing a tremendous amount of mobilization on the ground in Milwaukee, Racine, Beloit, city, those cities, also on the campuses around the state. And that's, that's really going to be critical. And then you know, we'll see how the Milwaukee suburbs go. This is one of the interesting things. The candidate who lost in the primary, Jennifer Doro, was very, very popular in the Milwaukee suburbs. She's not there. Now you're going to have a, a man running against a woman, and the woman is clearly pro-choice. Uh, that's, that's profound, and that could have a huge impact. One last thing. How long do state Supreme Court justices serve in Wisconsin once they're elected? They get 10 years, John, uh, a decade. And they also historically uh, get reelected, unless you're Dan Kelly. <laughs> John Nichols in Madison. We'll be talking about this again in the next 41 days. You can read John's reports at thenation.com. Thank you, John. We needed you. Thank you. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about the Constitution. Our Constitution is not good. It urgently needs to be reimagined if we want justice and equality for all. That's what Ellie Mistal says in his new book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. 
He's the nation's justice correspondent. He's a fellow at the Type Media Center and a frequent guest on MSNBC and CNN. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, and he's also great on Twitter. Ellie Mistal, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me back. Well, let's talk today about the Fifth Amendment. As everybody knows, the Fifth Amendment says the government can't make you incriminate yourself. But there's a second part of the Fifth Amendment that's not so well known. It says the government can't take away your property unless, unless what? Unless they give you just compensation, right? And that, that is, that is the, that is the, that's the top of the pyramid question. Like that's where the fight is. The government has a clear, unquestionable right to take your property. It's called the right of eminent domain. Every sovereign nation has it. It probably goes back to, you know, I made, I think I make the joke in the book. It probably goes back to like, you know, the village caveman chief, like <laughs> taking the cave from this other guy because they needed the cave to store the food. Like you can go back probably to the beginning of human civilization to understand some version of the of the government's theory for eminent domain. So so my question is, what does this have to do with black people? <laughs> well, it does because well, we'll put like this, John, that the government can take property is unquestionable. Who are the government going to take the property from? That's where we have some fun. Right. And it turns out that more often than not, the government is going to take property from people who are poor, from people who are politically unconnected, from people who are powerless. That's the property they're going to go get because in part of this just compensation rule, you can pay less for property from people who are poor, unconnected, not powerful, don't have a lot to begin with. You can get that property on the cheap for in a lot of situations. Also, because those people cannot organize to fight and defend themselves and defend their kind of property rights against you, against you, the government in court, as effectively as rich folks, right? And so, what we've seen throughout history is the government, the American government, constantly kind of going after the property of poor folks, minorities, and in fact, not justly compensating them um, for, for their land, but cheaply compensating them, shall we say, for their land. Well, the fights over eminent domain recently have been fought by libertarian forces on the right. For them, of course, government is the problem and private property is the solution. And liberals usually support the government in these fights because the government is supposed to be acting on behalf of the public. But who is this public? Yeah, so this is where I end up agreeing with Republicans a little bit, which oh, is no. super uncomfortable for me because <laughs> you said it exactly right. Yes, the general liberal position is that eminent domain is a good power for the government to have because when the government takes the property, it's going to do useful public things with the property, right? It's going to take the property so it can build a hospital or a library or a public space. It's going to take the economic uh, vitality of the property and preserve it as a historical site, for instance. Maybe it's going to take some, maybe you've got a lot of property, it's going to take a little bit of your land to put up windmills or solar panels. All of these useful things is what the government is what we think of as liberals of the government doing when it takes your property. In practice, in practice, what happens more often than not is that the government takes your property and then gives it to private investors on the cheap under some nebulous argument of economic development or redevelopment. 
So this power of eminent domain that should be used to build hospitals and wind farms is in fact used to build like baseball stadiums and basketball arenas, right? It's the government taking the property in, you know, let's say uh, in, a, in, a, in an urban environment, giving it to a rich white sports owner on the cheap so they can build a billion dollar palace for their toy sports team and not share the money, by the way, back with, back with the government, back with the state, back with the people whose property got took. And that, that's just one example. There, there are lots of, you know, the stadium example is the most obvious one, but there are lots of like allegedly public purpose things that the government will take property for that actually end up in the pockets of private investors. This all kind of crescendoed with the major Supreme Court case called Kilo versus City of New London. That's where uh, the, city, the state of Connecticut basically took an entire development zone and gave it to some economic developers for, for re- revitalization or whatever. It was just a cash grab for these private investors and, and the people whose property was, ta- was taken, they went to court, including one Suzette Kilo who just had a house that she didn't want to give up in New London, Connecticut. And they lost five to four with Stephen Breyer writing the majority opinion, defending the government's use of eminent domain and all that kind of stuff. And Clarence Thomas writing the dissent, and this is like the one you could go through the annals of American history and not find many places where I agree with Clarence Thomas over Stephen Breyer. But this is this is the one. This is <laughs> okay. like I think Clarence Thomas had the better of that argument because what Thomas said was that public use cannot be whatever the government says it is that day. It's got to mean something more tangible than whatever the government thinks it is, because too often the governments will say it's public use when what they really mean is they're going to get some money from private investors. And I agree with Thomas, kind of, ew, I know, it's hard. I can see the pain on your face. So your piece for the nation opens with a fascinating example. It's it's not from the 1950s, it's from the 1850s. And the public purpose was a great one. The creation of the greatest of all American urban parks, Central Park in New York City. We are so happy that we have a Central Park in New York City. What does this have to do with black people? There was an entire village, an entire community of free land-owning, voting Black people who lived in what is now Central Park. It was called Seneca Village. Hundreds of Black families lived there because back in the, this, you know, back in the long ago, in the before times, in the long, long ago, the white people who initially, who, who owned, I say that very loosely because we know that all of this land was taken from somebody else, but the white people who owned kind of at that point, what was upper Manhattan, because remember most of Manhattan in the 1850s was located basically below 14th Street, um, really below Canal Street. And so they owned this Manhattan estate that was basically the country, which was, it was literally farmland. And the, this white family decided that they would sell the farmland to undesirables, which included black people and quite a few Irish people. And so an entire community sprung up basically on what is now the west side of Central Park, kind of above, uh, you know, above the 70s, um, um, where like if Broadway went straight through the park, kind of west of where Broadway would be above the 70s, there was this whole village of Black people who owned property, 
remember in the 1850s there was no there was no 15th amendment so there was no guarantee of suffrage for black people but new york state had a rule that if you were black and you owned at least i think it was 200 dollars worth of property you could vote seneca village was one of the only places in new york where you where you could be a black person and own property because that was the only one of the only places that white people would sell you property so seneca village had a large percentage of the entire black voting power in New York City at the time. And they took it from them. They just, they just took the land from them to make Central Park. So this is an example from the 1850s, but you say all of the tricks that would be deployed against black communities in the 20th century were used against the people of Seneca Village in the 1850s. Tell us about these tricks. Yeah. So what the first thing they do is they say that they, they basically say that the property is condemned, that it's that it's swampland or, 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 or whatever, that it's um, that's not economically productive property and it's dangerous property. They use this to kind of drive down the price that the government will eventually have to pay under the Fifth Amendment's just compensation um, laws that also kind of creates public sentiment that this property is not valuable to the property owners, that it's much more valuable for whatever the public use they are, they are selling that week. I brought up in the book that the Central Park plan was not the only plan for a park in Manhattan. There was another plan where they would have taken Jones Wood. Jones Wood is a, is a place on the kind of Upper East Side, kind of in the 60s on the East Side on the water. It wasn't going to be as big as Central Park, but it was going to be this kind of big green space. Only a few families lived there, as opposed to the hundreds of families that lived in Seneca Village, but they were rich white families. They were the Joneses. They were wealthy white people, which means, like everybody else, they lived below 14th Street. But, you know, Joneswood was their country estate. The government went to take their property. The, the, the Joneses sued New York State. And they won. They won a lawsuit that prevented New York State from taking their property. So then New York State went and took, sorry, New York City then went and took um, the property of black people who also sued, but all oh, the black people lost. And now we have Central Park. Do you have any suggestions about what the state could do now to pay the black owners of Seneca Village what their land was actually worth? One of the nice things about owning property is that we have we have records of that, right? We know, we know who they were. We know their names. We can go find their descendants. And, you know, if you want to talk about just compensation, they were paid. Uh, I'm going to get the numbers wrong and I wrote it down so I wouldn't have to remember them on the plot. <laughs> so I'm not going to quote the numbers to you, right? But, you know, they, they, they got a couple hundred dollars profit from, you know, when they bought the property to what the uh, 1857 authorities paid them um, for the property when they took it. But that property, you know, and you think about the 70s on Central Park West, that's pretty expensive land just at the moment. <laughs> and I bet that if we went and we found all the descendants and gave them what their property is really worth, that, that would go a long way to ameliorating the historical hurt and the historical uh, uh, tragedy of the government destroying their town. I don't, I don't think we're going to do that, but like that would be, oh, I believe the word would be, that would be a good way to repay, perhaps a reparation 
um, of, <laughs> of the harm that was caused. Excellent. So eminent domain, you say, is one example of how our Constitution is what you gently uh, term an imperfect work that needs to be reimagined. What's your larger argument here about achieving justice and equality for all with the Constitution we have? Right. So, look, if we're going to stick with this Constitution, which there's going to be a whole ar another argument about maybe we shouldn't. But if we're going to stick with this constitution, then we need to interpret it in a way that for that that puts at the forefront the issues of justice, fairness, and equality. The constitution was written by slavers and colonists and people willing to make deals with slavers and colon and, and, and colonists. It's not a great document. I mean, it's just it's just straight up. It's not very. It literally has not been all that successful if you consider the fact that we had to get into a fighting hot war over it yes less than 100 years after it was ratified like there there are other ways to think about you know perfect documents and our constitution would not meet that standard right so if we're going to stick with it at the very least we must take the amendments that allegedly fixed it the 13th the 14th and the 15th amendments and i would add the 19th amendment 13th Amendment outlawed slavery, the 14th Amendment call for equal protection, the 15th Amendment um, gave voting rights, universal suffrage to men, and the 19th Amendment eventually gave universal suffrage to women. Those four amendments together become the most important parts of the Constitution if we're going to live in a pluralistic society. And so my fix for it is that everything that we do has to be strained through a lens and pass under under the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 19th Amendments. And if it doesn't, then it cannot be legitimate. And I would kind of start there as the baseline. I, you could call, I would call myself a 14th Amendment ideologist, right? Like, <laughs> that, that, that's a thing. Why can't that be a thing? I would make the, the 14th Amendment is, is the thing that makes all of the other amendments legitimate. Equal protection of the laws. It's a must. You can't have a free society without equal protection of laws. You can't have a free society without universal suffrage. And if you're doing things in your society, Republicans in Georgia, that, that, that take away from universal suffrage or equal protection, then that society is not legitimate. And that, shouldn't be a that really shouldn't be a controversial position. Ellie Mistal, he wrote about the use and abuse of eminent domain for The Nation magazine. You can read that online at thenation.com. His new book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, is out now. Kirkus Reviews called it a reading of the Constitution that all social justice advocates should study. And Matt Levine of Bloomberg Opinion called it brisk and brutal full of both laugh-out-loud lines and righteous fury. I agree. Thank you, Ellie. This was great. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds, KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. 
I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. USA.